Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50% to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. I look back now on that period and I know I am so strong. Bring it on. He knows that he can't hurt me anymore. What matters most? It's different for everyone. You're listening to Short Black with me, Sandra Sully. Good women, great chat. Joining me today is someone who's not afraid to go out of her comfort zone. She's been a nurse, a farmer, is a wife and mother, and is currently the New South Wales Minister for Mental Health, Regional Youth and Women. So, Bronnie Taylor, welcome to Short Black. Great to have you with us. Now, as the Minister for Women and a number of other portfolios in New South Wales, your profile is still fairly small. You've only been in the game a couple of years. What are you most passionate about? Look, I think I'm, I'm most passionate about healthcare because I think it's what I spent, you know, the majority of my career doing. So it's something that actually really matters to me. So the opportunity to be given the portfolio in mental health was a really big deal for me and um, a bit of a dream come true, really. But I guess, too, one of the things that really matters is more equity and access for rural and regional people. So it's wonderful to have that rural and regional youth portfolio as well because we've never had that before and that's a really important thing. Let's wheel it back a bit. You yeah. started your professional career as a nurse. Yes, that's right. So I started, I was, I think, the second batch of um, people to go through the university system for nursing. So that was incredibly challenging because it wasn't that well received once you were out on the other end because you hadn't done your time on the wards. And quite honestly, Sandra, a lot of us, well, myself included, were a little bit dangerous because it was a new thing to do it through university. So your practical experience wasn't, I don't think, um, as great as what it needed to be. But it was something that I really wanted to do. I was very passionate about nursing and I absolutely loved it from the first moment that I did it. When you said you were a little bit dangerous, I thought you were talking about your personality because you arrived with a degree and you hit the wards and you were in charge. Mm. But in essence, what you were admitting was that you possibly weren't as prepared as you could have been. A hundred percent. And that's the honest, brutal truth. And I don't think I'm alone. So I think that was a real issue because nursing is a very, very practical profession as well as a very cerebral profession as well. And I think, you know, that was a real challenge to get that mix right for people. So, you know, I remember going on to my first ward and I'd been posted out to Boy Boy Hospital and, you know, I had to do something and I thought, oh, I've got no idea how to do this. And so I was actually okay because I was confident enough to say, look, you know, can I get some help? And it was a little bit hostile at times, but, you know, you learnt very quickly. And then the great thing was you then suddenly realised all that theory came to fruition because you could partner it with your practical ability. Well, right now it's all about COVID. And for you, given your expertise prior to a career in politics, it's really armed you with some great insights into what our frontline healthcare workers are going through. What advice are you giving to the government right now about what they should be doing to support our frontline services? Yeah, look, that's something that we talk about every day because we understand that the stress that they're under and the challenges and 
It's interesting, Sandra, yeah, because you look at Victoria and you look at the numbers and you look at what's happening and you look at what happened in New York and Italy and you saw all those health professionals and the absolute depth of it. I think one of the hardest things for our health professionals here and certainly what I'm hearing from people on the ground is that anxiety of the expectation about what might come. So being ready for what might come. All being prepared for this massive influx into intensive care beds, which Touchwood didn't happen because we, we managed it, I think, really well. I think every single person that works in New South Wales Health in whatever capacity, whether they're a nurse, a doctor, a cleaner or physio, they should be so proud of what they've done. I, I'm not naive enough to know that it could all change next week, but I think at the moment it's been a really powerful thing. These are really good people on the front line and they're all there because they actually care and they're actually prepared. And I think, you know, for them, it's been a really confronting time. And it's been that anxiety of, well, what could happen tomorrow? The journey from being a nurse to a politician is arguably an unusual one. And while you have that insight and empathy and strategic input in terms of what needs to be done to prepare for the worst case scenarios, I don't want a political answer here, mm. but when you think of the Ruby Princess, mm. what's it like for you as a human being, what's it like when those calamitous events start to unfold? What do you have to do and how do you get yourself through it knowing that alarm bells are ringing everywhere? Mm. I think in healthcare and in healthcare provision generally, alarm bells ring because things happen very quickly. And you know, this was something that none of us had ever seen or none of us really knew what was gonna happen and how it was gonna pan out. In terms of the Ruby Princess, you know, you look at it now and you think, oh, you know, what, what were we thinking? What, what, why did we do that? Why did we make those decisions? But I think too that because, so say with my background in cancer nursing, a lot's changed, right? But if I go and, and saw a patient who was diagnosed with pancreatic cancer, I've got a fairly good idea about the trajectory of where that's going to go. This was unknown. And I think that's what's so different. And I think that, I think politics has played out pretty awfully actually in a lot of the, the COVID-19 response. And I think actually that, that's been the yucky part of it. The really positive part's been that you know, that whole Ruby Princess thing was terrible and it was terrible for people involved in health and terrible to look back and maybe look at that sequence of events. But I think what was amazing was that whole human side to it, that it happened and yes, if we could go back, would we maybe change the way things were done? Well, that'll probably all come out. I think probably yes, but everybody just got on with what they had to do. And I think that was what was so impressive. And that's what happens every day in the healthcare system. And for me, one of the really hard things about becoming a politician, from the simple fact that if you say you're a nurse, people actually have a certain amount of respect for you. Then when you say you're a politician, <laughs> let me tell you, it's completely the other scale. I mean, I've gotten into taxis and not told the truth about what I do. I actually still say I'm a nurse because it's just easier. But every day, really amazing things happen in the health system, but we don't tend to hear about those things. And I think as part of government and part of the health system, we're really not very good at telling those good stories. So for me, I look at it, I'm not overly surprised or overly, because I know, I know what people can do. I know what they're capable of and I know how they can change and pivot and, and meet the needs that are presented to them. But I think everyday people don't often see that. They'll often see or hear about 
the catastrophic event that happened rather than all the stuff that happens all the time and how prepared they are. And what's it like for you personally when you get that reaction from the public? How do you deal with that anger and frustration when they vent it at you? It's awful. It's really awful. Mm. And look, my first experience of, um, you know, it was literally my first week walking into the chamber and the way that I was treated by a particular member of the opposition that was just horrendous. You know, I've never experienced anything like it in my life. Gender specific? I wonder, I wonder if, yes, you know, I think I just have to call it and say, yeah, I do. And I think it was because of who he thought I was. I think he thought, oh, here we go, a blonde haired girl with pearl earrings married to a father. She's some conservative little, you know, upstart that thinks she's going to come in Boarding school princess or something, an assumption is made. Absolutely. You know, affluent family. He judged me and he ridiculed me and it was horrendous. And I, I honestly, as I said, I had never, I mean, I came from a very female dominated profession to a very male dominated profession and you couldn't get more chalk and cheese. But I do, I find it abhorrent to this day about the way that I was treated. Give me some examples. Oh, so when I first came into the chamber, he started calling me after a television character. So he'd never use my name. He would say, oh, how's Hyacinth today? He'd shout across from the other end of, you know, Hyacinth bouquet from- Of course. Yeah, yeah. And I got that continuously for weeks on end. And I was so upset and so infuriated and when I spoke to people about it and colleagues they'd say oh you've just got to toughen up that's politics and I was like it's bad behavior like it's offensive you know and it it was offensive to me and he'd do it to me then outside the chamber we'd be going down in the lift at parliament and he'd say oh so how's your house in Wallara said I don't actually have a house in Wallara goes oh yes you do And I go, well, actually, check your facts. But it was just so confronting and no one called it out and no one was prepared to do anything about it. And people would say, oh, you you know, maybe you're too nice for politics. And I just thought, oh, come on, that's just ridiculous. So there was one guy who, his name was Mike Gallagher, who had had a terrible time actually in politics. And I came in after him. Yeah. And... He actually came and saw me because he had nothing to lose. He'd lost everything because he'd been accused of corruption, which actually all turned out to be untrue. And he said, this is what I think you need to do. And I said, thank you so much. And I did. I called it out in the chamber one day and he wrote me a beautiful card and I've got it on my pin board. And it just said, well done. That should be the end of that. But, you know, I found too, when I um, got promoted and was fortunate enough to get into the ministry, the same person came after me again, but they came after my family and they came after my husband. And that was, I think, probably the worst time in my professional life. Do you agree women are often, you know, lassoed with their husband's careers, whereas it never seems to happen the other way around? Oh, absolutely. I completely agree with that. And actually, I spoke at something for Women's Week last year at the Opera House, and it was um, full of people and full of journalists. And and there was a particular editor there from a publication that had written some really disparaging stories about my family. And I just got up and I said, I look forward to the day when a woman cannot be referred to as to who she's married to or what her last name is. And I stared right at them. 
because I just thought you need to hear this and you need to hear it from me because you're not looking at what I've done or what I've achieved. You're trying to find something and trying to unravel me about, I, I, I adore my husband and I, I credit him a lot with his support of me and, and what I've wanted to pursue because, you know, life's a funny thing, isn't it? And it comes at different stages. And I was really fortunate in a lot of ways about the timing for my opportunity to go into politics. And he never once said, oh, don't do it, or I'm going to be at home and you're going to be living in Sydney a lot and doing it. It was always, oh, this is fantastic, go for it. And so when they went for him, it really, really hurt me. And I found it so hard to, you know, my voice got high pitched, my voice shook, you know, that physiological response that mm. I tend to have. Um, and it was just a shocking time. And also my brother-in-law, you know, that was all referred to. And it's like, you know, I, I, I've married into a family where one person is also, you know, a federal member of parliament, but that doesn't define me. But they tried to make it do that. And I think I've never seen other women attacked for their family the way that I was. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. The Professor and the Hack. Accessible politics with just a touch of depth. I'm Hugh Rimmington. And I'm Peter Van Onselen. You can find us, The Professor and the Hack, wherever you find quality podcasts. It's a really funny scenario. You know, in any other business, women can define their workplace as a place that should be fair and equal, and the rules are largely set, and you can argue the merits if things go awry. But for a woman in politics, you don't get a lot of uh, empathy because people don't like politicians generally. <laughs> and then when you add that extra layer of being a woman in politics, where it's considered a personal battleground because that's the only way people get ahead, I suspect you don't get a lot of sympathy. And yet it's, it's no less egregious. Yeah, I think you're exactly right. And I, look, I think what's happened, and I use, I use this analogy a bit because I used it when I was a cancer nurse, is that... You can't allow abnormal to become normal. So you can't allow that lump in your breast that you suddenly felt that was never there before, but now it's been there for a month because you just haven't gotten around to get it checked and you're too busy, you haven't been to the GP. So suddenly it becomes normal. Oh yeah, well that's been there or that spot on your hand, you know, that you, it just sort of starts to become, oh yeah, no, that was there. And I think behavior's been so bad in politics that they actually think it's normal. And I do think, I do think perhaps men might be better at, you know, having it out in the chamber and then being able to walk out and slap each other on the back or have a beer. I can't do that. If you've offended me personally in my professional workplace, I can't walk out and tell you that it's okay. So how did you deal with the indiscretions of late in the New South Wales chambers? We've got your own ministers and your own party members being downright rude and offensive. Mm. 
to female MPs, not necessarily of your political persuasion. Two things, how did, how did you deal with that internally and externally? Not very well, I must be honest with you. You must it, have been angry. I was furious, I was furious. And it was terrible because it was hard on my children. I've got two daughters who adore their father. You know, Brad Hazard, um, politics mm. aside, is doing a pretty good job and it's for really tough circumstances. Mm. Mm. His excuse was he was essentially tired and emotional. He apologised to Jodie McKay, as he should have, mm. because it was offensive the way he treated her. But you had another member of parliament mm. who called a female MP barren in the parliament. Mm. So how do you process that, deal with it, if they're in your party and if not? Look, I think, you know, I know the whole call it out thing gets repeated, but I think it's the only way that things will change. And I find it, I found it very difficult because when it was happening to me, people all knew it was happening and they'd say things to me on the side, oh, geez, really got it in for you or, you know, that that's really wrong, whatever. But no one spoke to him about it and no one called it out. And this guy's been doing it forever, as long as he's been in there. Should Brad Hazard have said what he said? No. And if that was a woman and you said you were tired and emotional, I wonder, I can't help but wonder how the reaction would be. Um, and <laughs> Well, it would have been completely different. Yeah. He, he seemed to, well, arguably people wanted to accept the apology, whether you accepted the excuse for his behaviour might be a different thing. Yeah. Did you find it necessary to have a quiet word to the minister? To Minister Hazard. Uh, look, I haven't yet, but I think that he knows exactly what he did and that's why he apologised. And I think that we're all going to do some really silly things. I think the first thing is that there needs to be an apology. I think with my colleague, Steph Cook, who was called Baron, you know, that's been going on for quite some time from the shooters party against her. That MP aside, who's been doing that for quite some time, what I think staggers me is that that MP doesn't see anything wrong with it and doesn't understand why it's so offensive. Because I think, you know, it's like a child, right? If you let a child behave badly or not say thank you or, you know, do something that they're not supposed to do, if you don't pull it up, it keeps happening. And I think in Parliament... We use it as an excuse. We say, oh, well, that's just the bear pit or that's just, you know, that's just what happens. And I think until there's more women that can actually say this is not OK and this like, I think the Labor Party has some of the most incredible women and, and I, I, some of them I have an enormous amount of fun with and I think they're fabulous and I love working with them. But I also know that they know there's people in their party who are serial offenders. And I think it's actually, it's really important to call it out on our own side. And I think that's what's really powerful. So I think this recent episode has taken a career in politics. It's set it back quite substantially because how do you encourage women to chase a career in politics where you can genuinely make a difference in people's lives? I mean, that's the wonderful thing. As you know, you can genuinely change people's lives. And I know a lot of politicians are really motivated by that simple opportunity mm. to make a genuine difference. Mm. But when stuff like that happens, as the Minister for Women, how do you tell budding aspiring politicians that they should chase their dreams when, when it's not a fair, a fair and equitable workplace? It's actually one of denigration and appalling behaviour. Mm. And look, really bearing my soul to you, if... 
I had known that they were going to say the things about my husband and my family that they did and the accusations that they made. Hand on heart, I don't think I probably would have taken the step that I had to put my hand up. And that's really saying something because I feel so fortunate to be where I am. But that hurt me so deeply because I think if it had been leveled at me, that would have been so much easier because I can stand up for myself. But the reality of parliament and people being able to say whatever they want with that protection in the chamber and to smutter you and to say things about the people that you love most and you can't do anything. And so for me, then I would go home and I would just be so devastated for what I was putting my family through. And I have a, I, my eldest daughter, she, all she wants to do is be a journalist, you know, and I, it's not a great time, I, quietly. I, I know, it's the worst time, <laughs> it's a right? time worst time. Friggin' endless university and now no jobs. But, you know, I, she was asking me when I was going to stop because she was so worried this would affect her career. Now, as a mother, how do you manage that? How do you say to her, look, I need to stand my ground, Han. I need to do this because it's what's right for women and to, and to make it easier for you but know that she thought it might affect her and she could see what it was doing to her father. So now that I'm through that period and I, I will pursue this and I will make sure that, that things come out and that people are accountable for their behavior, I need to push through and I need to make sure that I make it better because we need more women. So crystallize the advice you give for aspiring politicians and young women in general who are confronted with this daily. I would say to them too, it's all about the timing. I'm so glad that I came into politics as an older woman. I'm so glad that I'd had a previous career. I think it is just absolutely essential in politics to have a life before you come. Real life experience. Real life experience, mm. you know, like I couldn't believe it when I came in. So I, I was actually, and people of the opposition and everyone will say, Bronnie's really unusual for the upper house because the upper house is party positions and it's people that have been there forever. I didn't come out of, I wasn't a member of a political party until a few years before I, I got pre-selected. But that's given me that real life experience. It means I have a solid life outside of politics, which I think everyone needs. And that would be my advice. I think for women, you can't rush in. It needs to be something that you absolutely need to be ready for because you're up against it. And I think though, if we can, and look, if we're to be really honest too, women are sometimes their worst, uh, you know, sometimes we don't stick by each other and sometimes we eat each other alive. And the really difficult thing about politics is that everyone wants your job. So that creates a really bad culture to start with. So if you come in and you're a parliamentary secretary or if you're a minister or everybody sort of, a lot of people want to get to that point. But if you can come in at the point where you're really confident in who you are and you're really sure about the policy directive you want to pursue and that's real and it's not fake, then I think you're ready. But that is, would be my advice. I think that you have to get every experience you can. You have to take the knocks. I think those knocks and those disappointments define us. I look back now on that period and I know I am so strong and I know bring it on and bring it at me. And what's more, he knows now that he can't hurt me anymore. 
while all those behaviours were inappropriate, mm. do you think at the time you were equally naive? Oh, yes. I was so naive. And, and, and they played on that. Oh, absolutely. Mm. I was so green. I mean, I must have looked like a sitting big fat duck in hunting season <laughs> when I walked into that chamber and they, they could smell it. Now you're a seasoned Polly. Yeah, look, I'd like to think that I'm a bit different in the sense that I've just learnt from some really challenging times. But I think too, it's so liberating sometimes being an older woman. And, you know, I used to fear my 50s, Sandra, because, you know, some serious stuff happens, yeah. you know. And you Let's not be, go there and detail you know, on you right now, but out. I'm with you, girlfriend. Oh, man, <laughs> alive. You know, talk about frigging confronting, you know. Yeah. But in so many ways... It's liberating. Yes. It's the best because you don't take the crap that <laughs> you were prepared to take before. Yeah. I'm not frightened anymore. And I think, you know what, I've, I've raised two children, I've, I've lived on a farm, I've pushed myself out of my comfort zone, but you know what, bring it on because I'm ready for you. It's been a real joy to get to know you, Bronnie Taylor, and uh, best of luck with your political career. Thanks so much for spending time with us here at Short Black. Thanks, Sandra, I've loved it. You have been listening to Short Black, a 10 News First podcast for 10 Speaks. To make sure you don't miss any of our great chats, subscribe in your favourite podcast app. So you've just watched Bachelor in Paradise and you're ready to watch Lockie find love on The Bachelor, but that's not enough, is it? No, you need me, Osha, and you need you, Alicia, right? Oh, that's what they need, Osha. We are here to discuss the new season of The Bachelor with our gorgeous Bachelor, Lockie. Isn't he lovely? We're watching every episode together. We're talking through each episode together and we're offering insights that no one can really give. I'm fascinated to find out what it's like to actually be in the mansion from you. I am fascinated to know what it is like being the host of The Bachelor. I've already given away a little too much about how we actually make the show, but you can hear all that on The Reality Bite, which is uh, our brand new podcast where we talk you through each episode of The Bachelor each week. The Reality Bite, Cocktails and Roses, get it where you get your podcasts.